Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, episode number seven. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge, and welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and armed citizens and the perspective of on-duty and off-duty law enforcement officers, giving you both angles of discussion. Today, my guest is going to be Steve Moses, and we're going to talk about Kenosha. I talked to Steve last week. We're going to talk some angles of discussion and concern that we saw from both sides, from the armed citizen side and from the law enforcement officer side. Now, I'm going to give you a little teaser next week. We're going to talk Kenosha as well. Episode number eight, we're going to have another guest on. And that guest, we're going to talk the full law enforcement perspective of the incident. All right, let's get a word from our sponsors today. This episode is going to be brought to you by Range Tech Bluetooth Shot Timers. Every serious shooter should have a shot timer to measure speed along with accuracy on the range. The new Range Tech Bluetooth Timer is the most affordable, high-tech, and feature-laden timer on the market. $25 less than any competing shot timer. The Range Tech Timer connects to your phone via Bluetooth and gives you the accuracy and power of a dedicated shot timer, along with the advantages of online storing, auto-scoring, and much, much more. Learn more at rangetechtimer.com. The Range Tech Timer, I got my hands on one. They're awesome. They're excellent. Using your phone or your smart device, tablet, etc. as the display for the timer. So I can set that thing up on a tripod. I did it just this weekend. I Bluetoothed it to my phone. I had a tripod sitting next to me. I'm literally shooting and watching the times come up in the on my phone. In real time, I was also able to set the delay times, et cetera, from the phone and just reach over and hit the, uh, the activation button on my phone has the ability to take pictures of targets and upload them into, uh, your, your storage there. So you can keep record of, Hey, I shot the test, take a picture of your target and the time. It's excellent tool. I'd recommend it to anybody. Pick one up today. They're at rangetechtimer.com. Honorary sponsor, as always, is EDC Belt Company, the most comfortable, functional, concealed carry belt on the market. I'm wearing one right now. They are also available at concealedcarry.com. The foundation belt from EDC Belt Company. They're available at concealedcarry.com. Concealedcarry.com forward slash foundation. You'll find the belt there. Let's talk Kenosha with Steve Moses. All right, welcome to the show, Steve Moses. How are you today? I am doing well, Brian. What about yourself? I'm good. Recovering from uh, from the weekend, I went to the NRA basic NRA basic instructor and NRA pistol instructor course last weekend, which I'm I'm sure you're familiar with. I had just never been through that that course curriculum, so it was kind of a kind of an interesting experience. I think that's a good certification to have. Yeah, I kind of had discovered that years of training law enforcement officers and and what I would consider like intermediate to advanced level shooters, I was having a real disconnect with uh, brand new people that are brand new introduced to firearms. And 
Yes. I, I had referred a couple of people to some NRA instructors, but I wanted to go get the firsthand knowledge of what that, you know, handgun basic was so that I, I could feel confident when I said, Hey, if you, you don't even have a handgun, let's, let's send you to, uh, this person over here, you know, locally, we got Will Andrews up there that, that teaches a great, oh, he's awesome. Yeah. And, and he's really good at developing shooters from the ground up. And I kind of look at myself as, as more of a almost turtle wax. Like he builds the car and I'll just put the wax on it. You know, uh, when it comes well, to the, you do much more than just a uh, turtle wax, but, uh, you, you, you refine them and you, uh, teach those people how to take those base skills, improve on those base skills, and then, uh, apply them correctly in a variety of situations. So, you're, you do way more than uh, put the turtle wax on. Well, I appreciate the I appreciate the sentiments. It's uh, it just as an instructor, you know, as you develop, you start to figure out where your where your shortcomings are. And mine was taking somebody that has never ever held a gun before and trying to get them up to speed. And with police recruits, it's pretty simple. We've got we've got almost twenty four hours with them over three days before they pop a live primer. So that was my, uh, my weekend. And, uh, it was a really rewarding experience. And surprisingly, there were some really top notch shooters in there that were kind of in the same boat as I was like, Hey, we, we need something to communicate to the influx of new gun owners that are out there. And that's our future. It really is. I think, wide base of really good proficient people that has not expanded in quite some time to any measurable degree. Uh, and, and I say that from, if you look at class photos and things like that, from, from top level instructors, you see a lot of the same faces in a lot of the same courses and guys are really honing their skills, but you're not seeing, I, I don't think we've seen a time in history where we've seen an influx of, uh, brand new shooters to the degree we're seeing right now. Uh, that's true, Brian. And the other thing is a lot of these brand new shooters uh, have never held a firearm. Uh, we've actually had a few classes in which students brought a brand new gun that they had never fired uh, or even loaded. Whereas, you know, 25 years ago, everybody came in class. They already had a gun they were somewhat familiar with. A lot of them had kind of a, you know, maybe a hunting background or something, but it's, it's, it's a whole, uh, it's a, it's a whole different arena now. Yeah, it is. And, and one of the things, one of the topics that kept coming up, we had it, we did have a couple of, of very new shooters that, that were in the basic class. And one of the topics that came up was a lot with, why did you purchase a gun? You know, what, what was your, your intent? What was your purpose for that? And as you know, like when you're going through pistol basic, one of the blocks is firearm selection. What do you intend to do with this? Is this recreational? Is it, is it a personal defense weapon? Is it or a personal defense firearm? Right, right, right. And, or is it, you know, something for plinking or home, de home defense? What define what your, your purpose for that is. And the majority of them that I spoke to mentioned, Hey, you know, with the civil unrest going on and we kept hearing this buzzword and it's the name of the town 
Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Several of them had been inspired by the events that occurred there that, hey, maybe it's time that I, I take my own safety, be more proactive individually about that. So kind of decided, hey, we need to maybe maybe dive into that topic a little bit. And, you know, for you, the armed citizen in that type of scenario, kind of get some uh, some back and forth conversation about about the events that transpired, neither right nor wrong, but uh, mistakes, pitfalls, stuff like that, that that have occurred from the armed citizens perspective, just kind of peel the layers back a little bit. That's kind of our, our purpose today. But I was really, really kind of taken back that that incident had a profound effect on the armed citizen community. Uh, absolutely. And one of the things, uh, you know, I do a lot of podcasts with uh, Sean Vincent and uh, Don West. Don West is a general counsel for CCW safe. And my perspective on those so much is so much more less to pick apart uh, exactly what the other person did incorrectly, but instead focus on lessons learned for the concealed carrier or the armed homeowner from that event. So my objective is always going to be is, okay, what can we learn from this event as opposed to, you know, picking this guy apart or, you know, or even praising him for, you know, actions that he took that we might deem correct. Right now it's a very controversial topic in prep for it. I, I talked to uh, the next guest that's going to be on for the next episode, Hanny McMood, and we're going to take it from, the surely from the law enforcement perspective and try to peel it back. But we also, we don't, we don't necessarily want to get into the controversy of whether we agree, disagree. We want to look at the lessons learned and some of the response stuff that occurred and go from there with it. So let's, let's dive right in. And and the first thing I want to say, I want to get out of the way really early for, for listeners is regardless of your feelings about what occurred that night, Three people lost their life in one form or another. Two people were were killed, and a seventeen-year-old young man. His destiny has been forever altered, and I don't hesitate to say that he's lost his life because his life, as he knows, as he's known it, it is forever gone. It is forever changed. Right. So, so that being said, Kenosha, Wisconsin, we had a, a civil disturbance. Massive amounts of people rioting, looting for whatever their their social cause or, or their belief was. This young man, Kyle Rittenhouse, becomes involved in a series of altercations with rioters. I, I won't call them protesters because I feel like that they were they were committing violent acts there, a riotous manner. And subsequently, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber were killed in the situation and a third third subject had uh, a permanent injury occur let's try and take it from uh from the very first incident with with rosenbaum i went back and watched the video and it's really hard to determine to get a, a like a bird's eye view of what occurred there uh, i do know that multiple shots were fired it sounded to me like two different firearms but we had a 17-year-old that was armed with a uh, you know, modern sporting rifle and, and became engaged in an altercation almost at contact distance right there. Kind of talk to that point a bit. 
from the armed citizen perspective. Okay, well, let's kind of start with uh, why was Kyle Rittenhouse there? Yeah, he I was think seventeen that's years old. He lived uh, out of state. Uh, he chose to, you know, come into another state, uh, knowing that there was a high probability of uh, civil protest, and uh, he ostensibly uh, wanted to help protect the community and protect those who were protecting the community. Uh, I believe that uh, he had a past history where he was uh, very, very favorable of uh, law enforcement, supported law enforcement. I think he had aspirations of perhaps going into law law enforcement. I believe he had taken some advanced medical courses. I believe that he was employed at one time as a lifeguard. And so my understanding is, is that Kyle came over to Kenosha. He was actually viewed uh, helping removing some graffiti from a building. He was interviewed at one point when he stated that he was there uh, to kind of act in the, uh, the you know, the, the act as a, as a medic of sort or someone that could, you know, render first aid and that he had brought a, an AR-15. I think it was a Smith & Wesson MP-15, if I'm not mistaken, in order to, you know, protect himself or protect people that might needed to be protected. From there, I believe what took place is there was another altercation that took place between uh, Rose, uh, Rosenbaum, and he was the first party that was shot, and another uh, person that I, I, I've heard people refer to him as vigilantes, um, militia, uh, counter-protesters, and then I've other per- heard people say that, okay, they were, they were guards. They, they were self-proclaimed guards, so I'm going to use that term, guards. Something I did, I did do a little bit of uh, map searching on, uh, you know, a map application. Uh, a lot of people have made an, a real talking point of, well, he was from out of state. I looked on the map at from where his hometown was to Kenosha was something like 22 miles, 30 miles. And around 20 miles, I believe. Yeah. And you and I being from Oklahoma or in Texas, you know, there are several towns right there along the border that you, you can be shopping in Texas or shopping in Oklahoma in, you know, a 15, 20 minute drive. It, it, to me, it didn't seem like the, the travel, uh, was, was that, uh, that lengthy and, it, it almost seemed to me they were close enough to the border between the states there that that was almost an adjoining, I wouldn't say completely adjoining community. It was close it enough was. that, it, that it, it didn't seem like there would be, it would be abnormal for somebody to travel between those two communities. Oh no, I have to, tw- I have to travel 20 miles from where I live to go buy groceries. So <laughs> it's, it's no small thing. You're correct. The, the, this proximity of where he was from in Kenosha was very, very close. Uh, anyway, uh, going on, uh, there was a confrontation between Rosenbaum and another one of these guards that, interestingly enough, uh, was dressed very similar to uh, Rittenhouse. Uh, I believe it was uh, Rosenbaum that was making statements like, just shoot me. There was some profanity and obscenities uh, that he uttered. My understanding is he attempted to light a dumpster, uh, and the guard, the first guard, may have attempted to extinguish it or did succeed in extinguishing it. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, confusion 
as to whether or not Rosenbaum uh, thought Rittenhouse was that particular guard or Rittenhouse had done something in order to enrage Rosenbaum. So Rittenhouse took off. Rosenbaum was uh, chasing him. Uh, he threw an object. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, discussions what that might be. It might have been something as innocuous as a plastic bag. As I understand this, Brian, Rittenhouse ran between two vehicles, and on the other side of the vehicles was a uh, an adversarial crowd. He was trapped. He turned around, and that's where the actual confrontation between uh, Rosenbaum and Rittenhouse took place. That was kind of my understanding, and I think as we as more information comes out, that initial lead up to the first incident will will become a little more clear. I've heard conflicting reports. I've I've, I've seen video from different angles, and it to me it was really difficult to determine kind of a window of time there that that is is unaccounted for that right. that, that I'm sure as as time goes by that will become a little more prevalent, uh, but. That incident right there, um, that initial first encounter uh, with the bevy of profanity and and the initial conflict right there, from the armed citizen standpoint, leaving out the the, the fact that he's he's not in his hometown, he's a self appointed guard to this this community. Right. What what is your that initial confrontation? What I saw was, pardon the expression, a lot of a lot of chin wagging and chest puffing going on there. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, that's when it's time to go. That and initial that's what Rittenhouse chose to do. Yeah, and, Rittenhouse chose, and he what he did was he fled. He turned his back on uh, a person that he believed to be a threat. Uh, attempted to run away, and appears that he basically. Uh, worked himself right into a fatal funnel and got trapped in which he had no choice at that particular point but to defend himself. That's that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware that that initial encounter happened right on the heels of that first, maybe verbal, con- we'll call it a verbal confrontation there. Yes, sir. That that timeline, I wasn't aware of that. So, so there again, you say he ran and ran directly into a place where he was essentially trapped. trapped. So uh, it appears that there's little doubt that uh, Rosenbaum did attempt to grasp the AR-15 at that time. There was actually a reporter that was immediately behind him that was providing this information, observed it, and then uh, made a statement to the police that, in his opinion, uh, Rosenbaum grabbed the barrel of the uh, AR-15, at which that time uh, Rittenhouse fired four shots. Uh, I believe uh, all four probably struck uh, Rosenbaum. Uh, one grazed his head, and I think uh, the others were either in his leg or his torso, and uh, the torso uh, wound was fatal. And uh, Rosenbaum uh, went down and possibly, you know, pretty much died on the spot. Right. After that, uh, Rittenhouse stepped out and started offering uh, medical aid, which was, uh, you know, kind of an indication to me that uh, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do under the circumstances, uh, but that he really, this was not an aggressive attempt to murder another person. Uh, From that point, I believe that the crowd started saying he shot that guy, get him and stuff, at which time uh, Rittenhouse decided he needed to uh, leave the area. I know in 
the initial interview, I did watch the initial interview with him where the reporter had kind of done a brief, uh, brief mm-hmm. encounter. And he mentioned he had a med kit and that he was, he was there quoted his job, his quote job, uh, was to help people that needed help. And as right. much of a noble cause as I feel like that is, and he did apparently have some background in first aid and as a lifeguard, I know you're, you're required to have some first aid training as an armed citizen. I would highly recommend anybody go get medical trained, but had, had his medical kit on his hip and it, with his AR 15 slung from there, that the thing that immediately concerned me with that, that interview going back in time was that he mentioned he felt like it was his job or he, he stated it was his job to protect property and, and render aid to people and protect run, others. Mm-hmm. run into harm's way. And as, as an armed citizen, kind of my, my opinion on that is kind of, if, if it's, if you want to win that fight, the, the, the best way is just to not be there. When I exactly. found, yeah, when I found out he was 17, my immediate reaction was, man, I, I can appreciate your your noble stance, but at the same time, it, this this isn't your fight. You know, I I've tried to kind of connect the dots to see if maybe he had fa- a family member there that that had a business or had some type of uh, valuable property, or you know, maybe an elderly loved one that was trapped there that I could. I could reconcile that right. and go as an armed citizen. This is a third person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as an armed citizen. Okay, the 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 police have this area cordoned off, and they're not going in to get anybody. So maybe you know, I could I could just I could reconcile that in my mind. But to me, there's just there's not a whole lot of property out there that that's worth that that type of uh, an encounter. And I don't know enough of the background with why that he was initially there, why he felt he needed to be there to really take an educated standpoint on it. But well, just remember being 17 and some of the stuff that you did and some of the stuff you probably did that your parents never found about. And then it makes it a little bit easier to understand is, you know, 17 year olds, uh, they're kind of drawn to violence. They're drawn to excitement. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity to do something. Uh, I think the kid, I wanted to uh, very much help people. I think in part, he kind of wanted to be, you know, perhaps a a, a kind of a hero. And uh, to that extent, it just kind of blew up in his face. It would have been so much better off uh, if his uh, objectives were to protect himself, protect his family, protect that property in which he needed to protect him so that he or his family wouldn't be harmed and otherwise, you know, leave it to the professionals he actually went to an event that was not even condemned by, uh, you know, the, 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 the mayor, the people of the town. They were allowing this to happen. It was just, it was just a, a, a very poor decision on his part. Like I say, um, I, I don't remember who said it, but the, the best way to win every fight is just don't, don't be there in the first place. And I look back to when I was 17, I was proficient with with firearms i had Mm -hmm. i had some very very basic medical training and i can't say that at that era of my life you know 24 years ago that that might not have had some allure knowing 
man, there's going to oh, be. I think a, we'd have had a lure. Well, no, we'd have acted up on it. I think it would have had some alert. Yeah, and that to me, I I can kind of I can kind of understand that. Whether forty one year old me agrees with seventeen year old me is a completely different <laughs> different argument there. Well, you know, another thing that brings to the forefront is this belief that a firearm, uh, in this case, a a long gun, is a a magic talisman that will protect you from evil. And the very fact that you have one, you're safe. Whereas, you know, as you and I discussed, if it's unsafe to go to someplace uh, without a gun, well, it's still unsafe to go there with a gun. That one, not to dive too far off into the police perspective, but (laughs) as armed citizens, which when I'm off work, I'm essentially an armed citizen. We do carry some limited powers of arrest, but having a firearm is as a, like you said, a magic talisman that's going to, that's going to ward off evil. Um, I've had people challenged, threaten, and, and been in physical altercations with people on the job that knew full well that I was carrying a gun because it was displayed openly on my hip in accordance with our, our policy is to be displayed on, on, on the hip in the holster and and it's a a symbol of basically a symbol of ultimate authority. That and the badge are kind of the symbol of ultimate authority in, in a in a circumstance. There, people do not automatically look at that and go, "That person's armed. I won't confront them." That was something that was a real startling revelation as a as a new police officer, knowing that people would engage you in a physical encounter, knowing full well you were armed, and knowing full well you were trained to use that that piece of equipment. So yeah, I think that's uh, on the armed citizen perspective. That's something we have to be very, very conscious of is just because you have the means to defend yourself. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have to. Absolutely. And the other thing is, uh, you know, making a conscious decision to take a rifle into a public setting where you're going to be in close proximity to other people uh, unless you think that you're going to have to use that, which you means you shouldn't be going to that setting, uh, having that long gun on your person just draws attention. You know, we had a similar incident in some ways uh, in uh, Austin uh, where a, a protester or whatever you want to call him uh, was shot. Uh, and in part, it was probably caused because he had that long gun on his person. Right. So saying, OK, the only way I can protect myself is to take a long gun. Well, you need to understand that you're going to be attracting people. I live out here in rural Texas. I mean, there's actually a deer processing station on our main street and nobody walks around here carrying a rifle. If someone walked around carrying a rifle on their person, it would capture everyone's attention. So that's not a good thing to do. And obviously it didn't play out well in this particular incident. Here in, in one of the things I heard was, uh, why didn't the, the police, if they contacted him, why didn't somebody say something to him? You know, my only response to that is there were only so many police officers there and they were kind of in a, from what I saw, uh, just, just in video. And, and I hate to take that as in like an educated, uh, platform right. stance, but, but based on the things that I saw, they were kind of in a, for lack of a better word, a defensive posture where, they had essentially cordoned an area off and they were not going to go and proactively engage protesters, counter protesters, whatever you want to call them. They were essentially there to contain that incident. And that's, that's something that I've seen happen in my career where it's frustrating when you look out and you see 
you see crime happening right in front of you, but you know that the risk to go intervene in that far outweighs the potential uh, reward. It's the risk versus reward. Okay, we maybe we stopped Any this innocent, right. right. Maybe we stopped this guy from burning a dumpster down. Four of our officers were injured. Well, now that's tied up eight to twelve people to try and evacuate them. That's tied up medical services. So it becomes almost uh, a, a military mindset of what can we do with the capabilities that we have? And you weren't going to see uniformed police officers walking in and amongst the crowd going, Hey, how old are you? Why are you here? And why do you have that rifle? I can assure you if, if that had occurred, that probably would have, uh, there would have been some action taken or at least some further investigation, but the police seem to be in a in a fairly uh, in, in a containment or a defensive posture there, so chances are he, the the first cop that he saw that evening was uh, the ones he went and attempted to surrender to. That was kind I of believe that's correct. As a matter of fact, early in the evening, I believe a police officer actually said to uh, some of those people, "Hey guys, we appreciate the support." So you know, uh, yes, we've got some people over there. Uh, we're pretty certain. However, that they're not going to be violent. If anything, they might be an asset. We don't know, but they kind of dismissed them, I believe, largely as being a potential threat to, you know, law and order. Right. So, so that was kind of a, something that I don't think the country as a whole has seen that type of uh, citizen response probably since the riots in 1992 the LA riots, which at the time I can, I can remember watching that when I was much younger and, you know, seeing citizens on rooftops, uh, defending property with firearms and their take on it was (laughs) the police aren't coming to help us. So we're, we, we've got to draw the line in the sand, so to speak. And I think the country as a whole then was the perspective of it was a lot different. So I think that's another Absolutely. another factor that's coming into play is that our country that the perspective has has changed to some degree on how they how they view that. Uh, I've heard I've heard a number of people I respect that train uh, armed citizens that that have even take, taken the approach that hey this is an insurance problem at this point. Well, it, it really is. And it's sad. And I understand people are saying, uh, you know, for all practical purposes, I'm not taking this crap anymore. But the reality of it is, if you're in an area like Kenosha, which basically, you know, the town officials are letting them riot, uh, they're not having the police become engaged in there. Uh, it's one thing, I believe, to go and protect your own property, your own livelihood. It's another thing to say, I'm going to assist, I'm going to go in there and help. And I mean, again, I appreciate the thoughts behind it, but, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't think it does anything. And as we can now see for Rittenhouse and the three other persons, uh, man, it it had just terrible consequences. It did. So let's move on to... uh... Let's move forward into the second the second engagement there, which is where we had two other individuals shot within a very, very short window of time. That would be uh, Anthony Huber, who right. I believe... Well, actually, I think, bet- I think between the time that Huber 
was engaged and Rosenbaum was engaged. Uh, there was actually an engagement uh, with another person. If I'm not mistaken, he was he may have very well been assaulted or attempted to have been assaulted by another person that looked like he was doing some sort of flying UFC drop kick that missed and uh, then disengaged without being shot. Right. So there was actually, I think there was another party. So again, I'm I'm a little bit out of sequence, whether that took place between Rosenbaum and Huber or Huber and uh, Grosskreutz, but there was a person that actually tried to kick him in the head. And I believe that he got back up being Rittenhouse may have stumbled. And that's when uh, Huber attacked him. And uh, from what I understand, uh, Huber attempted to strike him with a skateboard and then uh, try to seize the rifle. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of chatter about the, the guy doing the flying head kick. I don't even know that that's, that person's been identified. I, I haven't, if they have, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of it, but the skateboard attack, I think is the one that, that everybody seems to be very cognizant of. And that one seems to derive a little bit of, um, controversy from, and I've heard a couple people argue it was, it was just a skateboard. I'm not a skateboarder. I don't know anything about skateboards. I don't know what their, their general weight is, I do know that I've seen them used effectively as a tool to destroy property. And what, maybe two months ago, we had a, an individual that was that was hit in the head with a skateboard that ultimately lost his life attempting to defend his property. But that, that incident there is what uh, seemed to inspire him to take action or him being Rittenhouse to take action with his rifle yet again. Yeah, good point. Uh, what I actually did was I purchased a skateboard. I have no intention of getting on it, but I purchased a skateboard uh, in order to write an article for CCW Safe on uh, defense against blunt instruments. And a skateboard, typical skateboard, uh, the deck alone weighs about two pounds. And the underpinnings, which is going to be the truck, the bearings, and the wheels, uh, weighs another five to six pounds. Wow. And so you've actually wow. got typical skateboard is seven to nine pounds and uh, purchased one. I showed that to uh, Rob High uh, with a, a CCW safe. And we both were kind of going, oh, my God, I cannot be I cannot imagine being smacked with the under part of that thing. And if you look at that image, we will see that that was the part that Huber had made contact with on Rittenhouse. I very easily could have uh, knocked him out, uh, broken his collarbone, uh, done some serious damage. So yeah, it's 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 a, in my opinion, it's a it's a potential deadly weapon. So at that point in it, what I saw was uh, it looked like Rittenhouse trying to run back to the police lines there because you, I believe he was. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see emergency lights in the background, and and mm-hmm. you know on the armed citizen perspective there. I'm going to go with physical fitness, man, that I can't, I've been in, involved in, in confrontations. I can't countless amount of times as a policeman. And th- this is going to sound like a almost cheesy, but, uh, you know, I, I've been a 
been a hobby cyclist to keep my my cardiovascular fitness up for mm-hmm. for several years uh and i can tell you firsthand it has absolutely saved my life on more than one occasion and in, in in a confrontation with a suspect so when i watched that and i'm looking at this kid jog he's kind of in a trot and right it pained me to see that because i was thinking dude i i would have that rifle by the magazine well uh in in the pat mac running stance and i would have been in a full tilt sprint for 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 lack of a better term to to lead to get out of there and after after you've just been in a lethal force encounter you know your your blood pressure is going to be higher you're going to have a ton of adrenaline and it literally saps the wind from your lungs it's it's pretty unreal phenomenon that occurs when you get into that survival mode and i really i really felt almost frustrated seeing him he wasn't run he wasn't running like man i've got to get away from this now um, like a jog. it was and and so that that's something that anytime i see i'm training armed citizens it's like you know you cannot discount the benefits of physical fitness a pistol rifle shotgun are still they're they're great tools being in an empty hand confrontation with somebody or having the ability to to have the cardio fitness to run away from a, a situation quickly you you can't discount that uh, now i know some people have physical limitations etc but right. but i can't discount the importance of you need to be fit to fight and if you you're as fit as you can be always Right. Just to maintain your physical health. More people die of, uh, you know, diseases, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, obesity-related diseases, where physically, if they were a little bit more physically fit, watch their diet, et cetera, uh, probably wouldn't have some of the same issues. Uh, I'm kind of an advocate of either run like your hair, so hair is on fire, and if you can't do that, uh, then, okay, be in a position where you are able to defend yourself at least in a 360 degree arc, which means if I have to be moving around, you know, moving very carefully, which is what he actually did at the end, uh, I would, I think he probably would have been a little bit better off. Uh, the big issue he had there also was uh, Huber again grabbed his gun. So he basically shot Huber. From my understanding, the descriptions that I've heard, he shot him at point black range while Huber possibly had his hands on the barrel. Wow. So, uh, there's there's a problem that's associated with uh, having a long gun. And the second thing is your retention issues with a long gun, as you know, Brian, uh, are, are it's way more difficult to retain a long gun than it is a, a handgun. The other person is able to get their handles on it, uh, get two hands on it, get more leverage on it. So if you don't have some pretty uh, high level defensive skills, uh, you're probably going to lose that gun in which I believe uh, he chose to just go ahead and basically for all purposes, shoot him off the gun. That's that's another thing that I think from the armed citizen perspective, a lot of people I've heard the phrase just because you're carrying a gun doesn't mean you're armed because if you don't have the skills to keep that gun on your person to be able to fight around it while maintaining control of it, that gun can be as big of a liability as it can be an asset. Oh, absolutely. I preach to rookies when, when I encounter rookies and we're doing firearms training, 
look, every single situation you go into, there's a gun there. They kind of look at you and go, what do you mean? Like everybody's armed. And I'm like, no, you were bringing a gun into that situation just by the nature of your, your job as an armed citizen. It's the same concept. If you are armed, every encounter you have with every other human being, every situation you go into, there's a firearm there. Yeah. A good reason to have that gun concealed also. I would think, yeah, that's good when it comes to a handgun. And especially you guys use level two and level three uh, holsters also to prevent your gun from being taken away from you, which is okay. That tells, uh, you know, that should tell the rest of us. It's like, okay, well, if police officers are worried about losing their guns, uh, shouldn't I? And the answer is, of course, yes. So we have engagement number two, which is uh, the one, the, the skateboard engagement. And then Huber. Huber. And then within a matter of seconds, you have engagement number three. From the video that I've seen, the third subject appears to do kind of a fake surrender. Who he's obviously armed. He has That's a right. he, has, mm-hmm. he has a pistol in his hand. Appears to have at one point he has his hands in the air with the pistol still in his hand. When I look at the video, I go back and I see what looks like that third gross uh, Grosskreutz, I think, is how you pronounce his name. It uh, appe- I think I call him the Grosskreutz, but I Kretz, may be wrong. Yeah. It appears that he starts to try to train the pistol on on Rittenhouse, and then subsequently gets yes. engaged there, which yes hit in the the bicep at close range from a two two three or five five six two two three. Yeah. Good God. And yeah, yeah. The biggest. The biggest takeaway I have on that one, on the armed citizen perspective, uh, without diving into the, the legalities of what happened, is it is very common in self-defense shootings to see see people shot in the appendage of which they're carrying the gun. And what I mean by that is when you get to a certain skill level and, and even to a degree an instinctive level of shooting, where your eyes go the gun tends to track, which is, you know, and you see that in archery. That's one of the things that's trained in traditional archery. What that told me from, from that perspective is Rittenhouse being on the ground was probably laser beam focused on the fact that that guy had a pistol in his hand. And when he fired his rifle, he essentially shot the appendage that the other suspect was holding, holding the gun in. So that, and that's not an uncommon phenomenon to, to see that happen. I've seen that happen in police shootings. I can't tell you how many times that, you know, there's non-lethal hits on a suspect in the gun arm, the gun hand, things like that, simply because the, the, the defensive shooter was focused in on that threat. That was my takeaway that, from that. That and to be, you know, cognizant, especially in a situation like that, where it's dangerous all around you, is people will use ruse in order to get close enough to you to harm you. So everybody in a situation like that should be perceived as a potential threat until, you know, the circumstances prove, prove otherwise. I've seen numerous videos of people with their hands in the air, you know, marching aggressively at other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that ruse. Well, my hands are up. Nobody's going to shoot me. And then I closed the distance and we ended up in a physical altercation. I think they teach that in criminal one Oh one. 
maybe criminal 201, <laughs> criminal behavior 101 or 201, fake surrender and then and then engage. So that, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That That's another takeaway that as an armed citizen, somebody... Somebody with their hands up does not necessarily mean that they are surrendering. They may be using that as a ruse to close the gap with you, to close the distance gap there. Maybe holding that gun behind their back and everything. Did y'all ever do the drill where basically, uh, Alan McBee, my partner, and I do this for classes from time to time, where basically what we're doing is we'll have uh, Alan will aim in on the berm. He'll put his finger on the trigger. And all he's going to do, all he's got to do is hit the berm. And what I will do is I will stand over about 10 feet away and I'll face Alan. Uh, I'll kind of have my gun down here. And our goal is I'm going to bring that gun up and put a shot into the berm. And Alan has to fire the shot before my shot hits. And in most instances, he can't do it. Right. That reactionary gap, of even with your, you're ready to go finger on the trigger is still a guy can get his gun from uh, pointing at the ground or pointing upward to horizontal and fire a shot in about a quarter or a third of a second, which is fast. I've spent a lot of time, not to be a spoiler to uh, some of the material you get you get in my skill builder class, but I spend a lot of time talking about human reaction time and professional yeah. athlete reaction time versus normal earth-dwelling person's reaction time, we were able to quantify that using a shot timer. Reactionary gap, you start to figure out that a quarter of a, anything over a quarter or under a quarter of a second is incredibly fast. And your body takes about a quarter of a second to then react to that stimulus. And, and I go into principles of marksmanship that, that, that we harness that ability to be able to shoot fast, uh, not necessarily somebody shooting at me fast, but how to run the gun effectively at speed, training your eyes to see something in a quarter of a second or less and react to it. Uh, whereas if you're startled, you now have started that reactionary process over and somebody pointing a gun at you starts a reactionary process that you now have to, you're now in the, the OODA loop. You're, you're observing that. You now have to orient yourself to address it. You have to decide how to address it and then ultimately address decision, it. Decision, yes, exactly. And, and there may be a, a, a alternate decisions. You may have different options. You have to choose the right one and then physically apply it in a very short time span. And uh, what this simply means to us is that uh, we really need to be cognizant of the danger presented by people around us, especially in an environment like that, where you don't know what the intent of the other persons or their abilities or capacities are. Yes. And the only way that I have discovered that you can 100% of the time completely defeat the reactionary gap of another human being is to not be engaged in a conflict with them. That's the only, that's the only way that I, that, that I personally have discovered 100% of the time, if I don't get engaged with that person, how do we do that? We physically remove ourselves from the situation. Exactly. Disengage, make that decision as soon as it looks hinky to go ahead and disengage. And that's something that force people do all the time is they weigh the risks and benefits of taking an action that they feel like maybe it has a potential downside. Well, if that potential downside is critical, 
then the best thing to do, whether you're inconvenienced or not, or you inconvenience another person, is to just go ahead and uh, withdraw, uh, go around, go back, whatever. I really try to emphasize to people that if you go looking for trouble, you will find it. You will find it 100% of the time. But if trouble looks for you, and by you, I mean being in your own home with your own family, and you're prepared to deal with it, that to me, that is the, the, the better choice of the two situations because oh, absolutely. finding trouble can have impact that, that ripples out for the rest of your life. You know, you, you quoted me in an article and I really, I appreciate it because I, I said that, that phrase off the cuff that, you know, using your handgun or using a, a firearm in a defensive situation has three outcomes. Say it'll save your life. It'll put you in prison or it'll get you sued. And under some circumstances, all three. And I, I don't think there's a more shining example of what than, than what's going on right now with the after effects of that particular incident. Well, and the other thing I, I look at also, Brian, is I look at what is called just the, the ripple effect. Right. So you've got basically four actors that were directly involved in this. And sometimes, you know, I think as uh, concealed carriers, uh, homeowners, you know, people that do our best to, you know, always abide by the law, we tend to be dismissive of these people that are shot while committing a crime. As far as I'm concerned, those first three people were, were, were committing, you know, uh, misdemeanors or felonies of some sort. Right. Uh, I will probably guarantee you that they have family members uh, within those family members there are people that love them. Those are still sons and brothers and, you know, husbands, fiancés, boyfriends, uh, you know, just whatever, fathers, whatever. Okay. All of their families' lives have been impacted. So everything that happened to uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, and I believe his intentions were, were probably good and honorable, uh, it not only has impacted him, it's probably impacted a lot of his family members. And the same thing is true probably for the other piece, the other three people. I've talked to a number of people that have been in, in defensive shootings in the law enforcement realm, in the civilian realm, in the military circles. And the one common thing that I've seen that they all carry the burden of, even after becoming coming out victorious in a, in a completely righteous shooting right. is that within the post shooting incident, at some point they become hyper aware that the person whose life they took, they have parents, they, they might have children, right. they might have cousins, nieces, nephews, uh, their high school yes, football yes, yes, coach, absolutely. and that they, they wrestle with the emotional side of, I now extinguished that human life. And those people, that surround that person are forever changed. That's correct. That's something that I, I don't know how you can, you can express that to somebody that, that hasn't really been involved in that situation and how absolutely earth shattering that is. And then when we yes. look at, like you said, when we look at Kyle Rittenhouse, he has neighbors, family members, cousins, nephews, nieces, uncles, brothers, mom and dad, grandparents that are the course of their life has now been forever changed based on an incident that took in total, maybe a minute. Right. That is a major takeaway. And 
you know, we talked about that when I had uh, my dad on. Uh, we talked about, uh, we got into some of that with the aftermath of a shooting. And we're planning a follow-up episode on that one, too, to go in even a little deeper on that. And I've got... It's a great episode. It's well, a fantastic episode. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was uh, that one was really tough. Do you have any final... T- that I think that was a really good final takeaway, especially from the armed citizen perspective uh with law enforcement officers that's it's part of it and i think we become very conscious of it very quickly uh with with armed citizens i think it's it's not it's not something that's quite as uh prevalent uh when you talk about the 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 ripple effect uh, i think it's something that we need when we when we train armed citizens i think that's something that we need to put a lot of emphasis on i think that was a great final thought uh, anything else you'd like to add? And we'll wind it down. Well, uh, only that, A, I appreciate you having me on this podcast. enjoy doing these with you. Uh, and, and B, it's just as armed citizens, concealed carriers, homeowners, you know, make the best possible decisions. Do everything you can in order to protect yourself, protect your family, uh, protect that property that you must protect in order to you know, accommodate or accomplish those things. For the most part, it's not our job to go out there and take care of, of these problems that we're seeing. And I think going forward in 2020, I suspect you'll probably agree with me. I think there's a high possibility we're going to see more and more situations not unlike Kenosha. And to that end, uh, think about all the things that happened in Kenosha, uh, all of the things that happened that were detrimental to, uh, to these people and make the very best possible decisions that you can and then act upon them. 100% agree with you, Steve. All right. I'm uh I'm going to go ahead and sign you out here and uh I'm going to round the episode out. This is episode 7 Kenosha part 1 the armed citizen perspective. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning into episode 7. Thanks again to my guest Steve Moses. Also a shout out to our episode sponsor for this episode range tech bluetooth shot timers pick them up at rangetech.com i'm brian eastridge your host it's the off-duty on-duty podcast our next episode coming up we've got hanny mcmood talking kenosha the cop perspective all right you guys be safe have a good one The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC.